Due to the graphic nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape, violence, and graphic medical descriptions that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The odor was suffocating. Sweat mixed with torch smoke and waste-filled latrines. The windows of the chamber were boarded over, and the door only opened once a day when a servant brought in a meal. There was nowhere to bathe, and none of the 25 men assembled had brought a change of clothes. They were there to elect a new pope, and all of the members of the College of Cardinals were committed to stewing in the building until they reached a unanimous vote. But the foulest smell in the room wasn't their sweat, or even their feces. It emanated from the backside of a 37-year-old cardinal named Giovanni de' Medici. Along with a stomach ulcer, Giovanni suffered from an anal fistula, a painful infection in the lining of his rectum. In spite of his illness, he had made an excruciating trip to Rome, lying on a portable bed to mitigate the terror in his bowels. He was determined to see, and if possible, to influence the outcome of the proceedings. And so he sweated in the fetid air with the rest of them. The smell was so bad that the doctor who had operated on Giovanni's abscess begged to be allowed to step outside, but his request was denied. No one was getting out, not until a decision was made. Finally, after about a week of debate, a round of voting concluded. Giovanni had the responsibility of counting the latest set of ballots. His eyes widened as he read the tally. The vote was unanimous, and the name he saw was his own. Giovanni de' Medici had won the election, and in doing so, had fulfilled a generations-long plan to fortify his family's wealth and status. As Cardinal, Giovanni de' Medici had been the head of a prominent but embattled dynasty. As Pope Leo X, he would bend the whole Christian world to his whims. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we go deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, those despots are the three tyrannical popes who presided over the Catholic Church in the lead-up to the Protestant Reformation. Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're diving into the reign of Pope Leo X. In this week's episode, we'll look at his upbringing within the illustrious Medici family and his stratospheric rise to the apex of the Catholic Church. We'll also hear about his military exploits as a servant of Pope Julius II and how he got hold of the papal crown himself, fulfilling a plot set in place long before he was even born. Next week, we'll explore how Leo's extravagant lifestyle drained the papal treasury, and we'll hear how his attempts to make up for these deficits 
put him in the crosshairs of a German priest named Martin Luther, initiating a dispute that tore the Christian faith asunder. Born Giovanni dei Medici, Leo X was a prominent member of Italian society long before he ascended to the papal throne. A member of the vaunted House of Medici, he came along at a critical time when his family's fortunes were in dire straits. With his charm and wit, in addition to his fierce ambition, he helped usher the clan into the height of its power, becoming icons of the Italian High Renaissance. The second son of Lorenzo de' Medici, also known as Lorenzo the Magnificent, Giovanni was physically unprepossessing, rotund and squat, with spindly legs, a doughy face, and puffy eyes. He sweated profusely, his skin ranged from pale to purple, his thin fingers were delicate, and when he walked, he gave the impression of scuttling like a crab. But he was also a well-liked figure at the papal court, even during his early days as a cardinal. Along with hunting, he was skilled at falconry, and despite his severe nearsightedness, he attended to art, architecture, and literature with the aid of a monocle. He was also incredibly cunning. Leo's style exemplified the cold-blooded political calculations recommended by his contemporary, Machiavelli. Charming and magnanimous to those he favored, but equally ruthless and vindictive to his enemies, Pope Leo X shamelessly exploited his station to benefit his family. And his efforts were enormously effective, ultimately laying the groundwork for another two centuries of Medici rule. But for all his political instincts, Leo lacked the discipline and financial acumen that had helped his forebears amass their great wealth. He lived an outrageous lifestyle of non-stop Bacchanalian banquets, and he allowed his family's time-honored patronage of the arts to slip into profligate spending. The situation was exacerbated by the huge projects left over from his predecessors, in particular, the massive renovation of St. Peter's Basilica initiated by Julius II. The combined costs created an untenable situation. In just a few years, Leo put the papal treasury in massive debt. So he resorted to granting indulgences to cover his costs. It was this controversial step that proved the last straw for a priest named Martin Luther, sparking one of the most momentous events in the history of Western civilization, the Protestant Reformation. But before there was a revolution, there was a strange dream. In early December of 1475, Giovanni de' Medici's mother dreamed she was squatting on the altar of the cathedral in Florence, the Medici's home city in Italy. She was giving birth to a lion. Sometime shortly later, on December 11th, Giovanni was born. Her husband Lorenzo could only see this as an auspicious sign. His new son was born to be a great ruler, the stuff of royalty. The Medici had already been the most powerful family in Florence for several generations. 
Early in the 15th century, Lorenzo's grandfather, Cosimo the Elder, amassed enormous wealth and became Gonfalonieri, the unofficial ruler of the region. For several decades, they were the unquestioned leaders of the most prosperous state in Italy, recognized for their patronage of artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Sandro Botticelli. This legacy was secured by dizzying profits from the family's work in the banking industry. But in spite of their wealth and power, the Medici possessed no official titles in the two greatest arenas in Europe, the aristocracy and the Catholic Church. And as much status as their wealth had afforded them, financial success was unreliable over generations. When a handful of branches of the family bank collapsed in the late 1470s, Lorenzo was reminded of that fact. He also knew that the people of Florence could easily turn on his house. And then it started to happen. In 1478, when Giovanni was a toddler, a group of knife-wielding conspirators rushed at his father and uncle in the Florence Cathedral. Lorenzo narrowly escaped the assassination attempt, but his brother did not make it out, falling victim to 29 stab wounds. Enraged, Lorenzo executed or imprisoned almost 300 men implicated in the conspiracy. Among them was an archbishop whose death offended Pope Sixtus IV. Thus, things got even worse. The Pope excommunicated Lorenzo, and Florence briefly went to war with Rome. For Lorenzo, the writing was on the wall. As long as the Vatican was an opposition power, the House of Medici would never be secure in their control of the region. So, he'd just have to change the dynamic by getting one of his sons into the church as soon as possible. Lorenzo was honest enough to know that his eldest son, Piero, was not destined for greatness. At one point, Lorenzo quipped, I have three sons. One is good, one is shrewd, and one is a fool. Piero, sadly, was that fool. It was Giovanni, his shrewd second son, in whom Lorenzo the Magnificent placed his faith. In 1482, Lorenzo arranged for his son to receive his tonsure, a ritual shaving of the top of his head. This symbolized the beginning of ecclesiastical service and study. At just seven years old, Giovanni de' Medici's life in the church had begun. Lorenzo immediately set about seeking church offices for his son. But in the meantime, Giovanni received the best humanist education Europe could offer, sharpening his already keen mind. He had been reading and writing since the age of three. Now, along with learning logic and philosophy from the scholar Pico della Mirandola, he cultivated his lifelong love of art and music by socializing with the artists who frequented his father's court. Ironically, one aspect of his education that was mostly lacking was its religious component. His tutor, the philosopher Pico de la Mirandola, was more interested in aesthetics than theology, and even ran afoul of figures in the church for some of his impertinent arguments. As author Charles L. Mee Jr. put it, heresy was everywhere about the young Giovanni. And it doesn't seem to have bothered him. Giovanni was a quiet and obedient child. He was serious, an attentive student, but also happy and likable. 
He took a curious, amused view of the religious topics that did occasionally arise in his studies and was confused by any displays of piety he witnessed. Along with learning, he developed a love for hunting early on, and despite his paunch, he was an impressive horseman. When he wanted to be. Because he also earned a reputation for being lazy and decadent, a born hedonist who valued the delights of the world as much as, or more than, outward accomplishments. Even as a child, the young Medici viewed success as a means to an end, not to power, but to pleasure. This decadence was coupled with a poor financial sense. For Giovanni, money was something to be spent, and he had little of his father's understanding of how it was made. Lorenzo perceived these weaknesses in Giovanni. He worried they might ultimately hold his son back from extraordinary success. But Lorenzo couldn't let those anxieties ruin the plan he'd already put into action. After all, it was already going so well. In 1488, when Giovanni was 13 years old, Lorenzo convinced the aging Pope Innocent VIII to make the boy a cardinal. Lorenzo knew that Innocent was not likely to live much longer and didn't want to risk his son's fortunes on an unknown successor. He demanded that his son be given the position immediately, regardless of his youth. Apart from a flood of letters to the Pope and a number of sitting cardinals, it isn't clear exactly how Lorenzo convinced Innocent, but it isn't hard to imagine that a good deal of gold was involved. For Innocent, it was a stunning concession. Not long before, the Pope had promised he wouldn't grant cardinalships to anyone under the age of 30. Now, he was consenting to make Giovanni the youngest cardinal in the history of the Church. But the appointment came with one condition. Not wishing to suffer the embarrassment of so wildly breaking his word, Innocent stipulated that Giovanni would not publicly take office for another three years after he turned 16. He would spend the interim in Pisa, filling the gaps in his education by studying theology and canon law. In 1492, when 16-year-old Giovanni officially took the title of cardinal in a quiet ceremony, his father lay on his deathbed. In his final days, Lorenzo wrote a long letter to his son, imploring him not to let his indolence and wastefulness keep him from success. He reminded Giovanni how important it was for the family that he had acquired the title of cardinal, calling it the greatest dignity we have ever enjoyed. Then, in a torrent of advice that might have inspired Polonius's speech to Laertes in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Lorenzo dictated in great detail how the young cardinal ought to conduct himself. He admonished his son to eat simple foods rather than lavish meals. He told him to keep his expenses modest, to maintain only a small circle of friends, to defer to the judgment of the Pope, and to eschew silk garments and jewelry. The list of good habits went on and on. But above all else, Lorenzo encouraged Giovanni to rise early in the morning. The message was clear. This was a win, not just for Giovanni, but for the whole family. And he'd better not screw it up by being lazy. Unfortunately for Giovanni, no amount of conscientious advice could prepare him for the dirty world of papal politics 
he was about to jump into head first. Coming up, Cardinal Giovanni de Medici helps elect three popes, but finds his family's fortunes upended. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Early in his life, Giovanni de' Medici enjoyed a rise in the Catholic Church courtesy of his father's influence. He became a cardinal at 13, the youngest in history. But there was still much for him to learn about how the church really operated. In March 1492, the 16-year-old cardinal set foot in Rome for the first time in the midst of a rainstorm. It was a bleak picture of the city his father had denounced as that sink of all iniquity. Lorenzo's concerns about the city were well-founded. 15th century Rome was a struggling city with no real industry. Merchants and a massive criminal underclass alike depended on a flow of visitors to keep the city afloat. The population numbered around 40,000, with around 50,000 tourists at any given time coming to see the crumbling remains of Rome's former glory. But Rome was also the home of the papal throne. And when Innocent VIII died in July 1492, living just long enough to confirm Giovanni's cardinalship, the young Medici attended his first meeting of the College of Cardinals to choose a successor. It would have been easy for him to let old feuds dictate his present decisions. One of the key figures in the debate was Cardinal Raffaele Riario, who had been involved in the conspiracy to assassinate his father and uncle years earlier. But Giovanni saw past this and sided with Riario in his support of Rodrigo Borgia, Though he was deeply suspicious of Rodrigo Borgia, he could see where the cards were falling. In true Machiavellian fashion, he calculated that Borgia would be the victor, so he aligned with him. He made his vote knowing full well what kind of man or monster they were electing. After the result of the final vote came through, Giovanni allegedly said of the newly elected Pope Alexander VI, now we are in the jaws of a ravening wolf. But for the next few years at least, the young cardinal would be more occupied with his family's fortunes than with the lurid exploits of the new pope. 
With Lorenzo the Magnificent gone and Piero the Fool in charge of the Medici's affairs, their position in Florence was more tenuous than ever. And it wouldn't be long before the great Medici clan faced a threat that Piero could not meet. In September of 1494, King Charles VIII of France invaded Italy. As we discussed in our last few episodes, the ambitious young monarch decided he would try to seize the Kingdom of Naples for himself. He led a troop of 30,000 soldiers on a long march through the land. It was the largest force ever to invade Italy, twice the size of the army Hannibal had brought there 16 centuries earlier. On top of its size, Charles's forces were filled with soldiers hardened by brutal battle in the north, where warfare was not as polite and tactical as it was near the Mediterranean. At the head of the charge were the Swiss Guard, legendary for their ability to break up lines of cavalry and decimate opposing forces. After traipsing through Milan and other parts of northern Italy with little resistance, Charles met Piero and his men at the outskirts of the Florentine territory. He expected a negotiation, and if that failed, a battle that he would almost surely win. What he didn't expect was that the son of Lorenzo the Magnificent would fold like a piece of parchment, capitulating to all of the king's demands and asking nothing in return. By the end of their meeting, Piero had agreed to give Charles a massive loan of 200,000 ducats, a sum equivalent to several hundred million dollars today, for the privilege of letting the French brigades set up shop in Florence. To top off the indignity, while there, Charles's soldiers spread a newly introduced disease, syphilis. When news of Piero's pathetic parley made its way back to Florence, the magistrates of the city were incensed. They summoned the citizens to Piazza Signoria, the city's main square, where they called for the ouster of the Medici family and for a new ruler to be installed. Giovanni had by this time returned from Rome to support his brother and protect the status of the family. While his fortunes lay more and more in Rome, Florence was still his ancestral home and the seat of the lifestyle and culture he cherished. Giovanni tried to get Piero to defend his actions to the public, but his brother was despondent. So the 19-year-old cardinal rode out onto the streets himself, shouting the Medici rallying cry, Palle, 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 a somewhat unlikely phrase, which means balls, 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 and refers to the five red balls and one blue on the Medici coat of arms. But the people were not swayed by Giovanni's impassioned cries. They responded with the call, Popolo e libertà, people and freedom, and hurled rocks and garbage at the representatives of the Medici. The gentry of the city declared that the Medici were to be expelled from Florence laying the groundwork for a new democratic government under Christian preacher Girolamo Savonarola and his followers. Piero, bitter and humiliated, descended into debauchery. He settled in other parts of Italy, where he spent his evenings and a large part of his family's fortune on alcohol, gambling, and women. Giovanni, on the other hand, spent his exile looking for an opportunity to improve his prospects. 
He had no desire to return to Rome and get caught in the middle of the simmering feud between Alexander VI and his rival, Cardinal della Rovere. So he set out discreetly on the road, traveling around Europe with his cousin Giulio and a band of ten friends. For six years, Giovanni toured the continent, all the while longing for an opportunity to reestablish himself in Italy. But no one seemed to be handing him a chance. So, finally, he decided it was time to make the chance for himself. In 1500, after sailing back to Italy from France, Giovanni arranged a dinner with the powerful Cardinal della Rovere. He assured the elder Cardinal that he supported him, not Alexander VI. The candles had hardly burned out on the dining table before Giovanni hurried to Rome to assure the Pope of his allegiance to him. Meanwhile, Giovanni dispatched his brother Piero to appeal to the Pope's son, Cesare Borgia. His cousin Giulio traveled to France to speak to the new king, Louis XII, on his behalf. Giovanni was pursuing a time-honored Medici tradition of remaining friendly with all sides. The message to all parties was the same. The time had come to restore the Medici power in Florence. And for a period, it looked as if Giovanni's new, unlikely set of alliances would achieve its goal. Unfortunately, however, both Borgia and Louis XII withdrew their support before the city could be won. Giovanni would have to keep waiting before he could return home. In the meantime, however, Italy's balance of power was far from stable, and Giovanni was starting to see that in the world of papal politics, anything could happen. In 1503, when Giovanni was 27 years old, he attended two meetings of the College of Cardinals in quick succession, first to elect the short-lived Pope Pius II, and then a month later to name Giuliano della Rovere as Pope Julius II. Giovanni saw opportunity here. Thanks to his diplomacy, the new Pope Julius saw him as an ally. Then, yet another death shifted things even more dramatically for Giovanni. That December, while sailing with the French army, Piero de' Medici's ship capsized and the eldest son of Lorenzo the Magnificent drowned. It was a sad but fitting end for the man nicknamed Piero the Unfortunate. And it meant that Giovanni was now the head of the House of Medici. Exiled from their homeland, and their finances in worse condition than they had been in generations, the family's future now lay in his hands. And his own fate, he knew very well, was tied to his success in the church. Maintaining the favor of Julius II was suddenly more important than ever. Not a comfortable place to be in, considering the Pope's apparent bloodlust with his constant wars. But Giovanni was confident he could make it happen. After all, in addition to his well-timed diplomacy, he was well-liked throughout Rome. Giovanni was known to hold court with artists and dignitaries. He engaged in elevated discourse, utterly free of the zealous pronouncements that characterized many religious leaders of the day. People were impressed by him. Now, he just had to manipulate his advantages to fix his family's problems, first by getting back Florence. 
He was forbidden by law to enter the province or even to correspond with anyone from Florence, but he made a point of showing tremendous generosity to any prominent Florentine visitors to Rome. Then, in 1508, Giovanni arranged a marriage between his niece and a Florentine nobleman. After some hand-wringing, the lords of the city approved the marriage under certain conditions. Ever the strategist, Giovanni was carefully testing the waters as he gradually prepared the ground for a Medici return. He wanted to make sure the family did not go back prematurely, and that when they did, they would be greeted with open arms. The big moment came a few years later when Pope Julius II promoted Giovanni to the role of officer in his vast war efforts. Though he was not a military leader by training, Giovanni was an able rider and hunter and had demonstrated that he could inspire people with his pleasing articulate oratory. Julius believed he possessed the skills needed to be a strong commander. The Pope's faith was rewarded. Giovanni proved himself in battle. He was a steady-handed commander. And in 1512, when the Cardinal was 36 years old, he was rewarded in turn. Pope Julius put him in command of his army. That April, Giovanni led the papal troops against the fearsome French general Gaston de Foix in the Battle of Ravenna. With help from their Spanish allies, the Cardinal's forces surrounded the French invaders and laid siege to them. What resulted was a massacre of an order rarely seen in Renaissance warfare. Artillery fire gave way to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat. The French were victorious in the end, though they had lost 10,500 by the time the Italian forces retreated. After the battle, Cardinal Medici roamed the battlefield, ministering to the wounded French, Italian, and Spanish alike. Not surprisingly, he was picked up and taken prisoner by the French. His tactical cunning, it seemed, did not extend to every aspect of his conduct on the battlefield. What followed was a small, unlikely farce. While being led by the weary troops back to France, Giovanni pretended to fall ill. He was sent to a nearby rectory for medical aid, where he enlisted an escape party. These recruits whooped and hollered to create a diversion, while the Cardinal rode off to a boat waiting to take him away. He then made his way back to Italy disguised as a soldier. In spite of his loss, capture, and the strange circumstances of his escape, Pope Julius welcomed Giovanni back with open arms. He was impressed by the Cardinal's leadership, and a few months later, he even handed his generals several thousand fresh Spanish troops. This time, however, they weren't meant to oppose a foreign power. They set out with the purpose of reclaiming Florence for the Medici, and they were going to do so by any means necessary. Coming up, the Medici return to Florence, and Giovanni becomes Pope Leo X. Now, back to the story. By 1512, the 36-year-old Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici was a highly regarded commander in the army of Pope Julius II. Now, with a contingent of troops borrowed from Spain, Giovanni had the opportunity to use his position to his own and his family's advantage. On August 29, 1512, 
Cardinal de' Medici looked on through his monocle as his army descended on the Florentine city of Prato. After breaching the city walls, the soldiers set about butchering soldiers and citizens alike. They murdered children and raped women. Frantic mothers threw their daughters into wells and jumped in after them to escape the violence. One Italian ambassador who witnessed the event described the brutality in a letter to the Duke of Ferrara. He wrote, These Spaniards made such a massacre and butchery the like of which I have never seen. All the streets, houses, and churches themselves were full of the dead, and all of the women have fled to some monasteries and churches where the most miserable laments and pleas that it is possible could be heard. The whole place is put to the sack. Some reports said that the soldiers entered a convent where a number of people had sought refuge, raping and torturing the nuns as well as the laywomen. One story has it that Giovanni de' Medici aided an attempt to barricade the doors of the convent and protect the people from his own soldiers. But even if this was true, Giovanni's words suggested that he was not all that perturbed about the savagery inflicted on the town. He wrote to Pope Julius II, The town was sacked, not without some bloodshed, such as could not be avoided. The capture of Prato, so speedily and cruelly, although it has given me pain, will at least have the good effect of serving as an example and a deterrent to others. The bloodshed that could not be avoided amounted to several thousand dead, a majority of the city's population. It was one of the worst civilian massacres in the history of Italy. But as Giovanni predicted, the attack did serve as a deterrent to his enemies. After hearing about the sack of Prato, the acting leader of Florence fled by cover of night. Two days later, Giovanni marched triumphantly into the city of Florence, home again for the first time in 18 years. After spending half his life in exile, Giovanni was determined not only to return, but to re-establish Medici rule. As the lords of the province met in the palace to discuss how to reconstitute the government, the cardinal arrived outside with hundreds of Spanish troops at his side. The message was clear, and the debate fell off abruptly. Giovanni's younger brother, Giuliano, was pronounced the head of a new republic, and several dozen Medici lackeys were given seats on the city council. The Medici were once again the leaders of Florence. But now that Giovanni de' Medici had reclaimed his family's former glory, he needed a new goal. A bigger one. In fact, he decided to aim straight for the top, the papacy itself. And as luck would have it, it wouldn't be long before the opportunity arose for him to try to claim it. On February 21st, 1513, Pope Julius II died in his sleep. The College of Cardinals gathered for the third time that century to elect a new pontiff. On March 4th, the cardinals locked themselves in a conclave, vowing not to leave until a candidate was chosen. Cardinal de' Medici was not in Rome when the meeting began. He was laid up in Florence with a painful anal fistula. When word of the conclave reached him, his attendants placed him in a litter and began a slow, grueling journey to Rome. 
Every jolt of the carriage was excruciating to the passenger, but he knew he had to be present for this conclave. Once there, Giovanni had to be carried into the chamber, still lying on his litter and attended by his doctor. But if it seemed an inauspicious entrance, his poor health ended up working to his advantage. Reacting to the terrors of Pope Julius II's reign, the cardinals were looking for two primary traits in their next leader. They wanted someone who was the opposite of Julius, and who in addition wouldn't live long enough to do any serious damage to the church's reputation. They found both qualities in Cardinal de' Medici. He was well-liked and affable, and although he had proven himself in battle, he did not seem quite as avid as Julius to inflict suffering on the masses. More importantly, while Giovanni was only 37, the grim look on the face of his doctor told the cardinals he might not be long for this world. After about a week of debate and multiple rounds of voting, a window finally opened on the building. One of the cardinals, no doubt glad to get a breath of fresh air after a week in the stinking chamber, stuck his head out to address the crowd assembled outside. He called out in Latin, We have a pope, the Reverend Master Giovanni de' Medici, and he announced that the new pontiff would call himself Leo X. The name Leo had a triple significance, recalling the legendary Pope Leo the Great, the lion as the symbol of Florence, and the lion Giovanni's mother dreamed of on the eve of his birth. It also suggested that, contrary to his delicate physical presence, the new Pope would project an image of strength. Pope Leo X dragged himself off his litter and ascended to the papal throne. He was conveyed to St. Peter's Basilica as a hymn rang through the air, Te Deum Laudamus, We Praise You, God. When word of the election reached Florence, celebrations erupted all over the province, with bell ringing, cries of pale, and massive bonfires. One shopkeeper noted in his diary that after all the branches and brushwood had been cleared from the streets and fed to the flames, Residents continued to look for fuel. The shopkeeper wrote that people ran all over Florence to pull down the wooden roofs above the shops and everywhere, burning up everything. The government threatened to hang anyone caught pulling down more roofs. The city was at risk of being destroyed by the looting and the massive blazes. But Leo missed all these displays. He was caught up in his business back in Rome. Leo's official coronation occurred on March 19, 1513. The affair was unforgivably modest by Medici standards, occurring on an erected platform with imitation marble outside the shell of St. Peter's Basilica. So when a public procession followed three weeks later, the new pope ensured that it was done in grand fashion. Leo rode past the throngs of noblemen, bishops, and government officials wearing a mass of fine garments, jewels, and the papal tiara. He sat atop a white stallion bedecked with gold and silk, fine perfume covering the gases that leaked from his injured backside as the horse trotted along. He was obviously in severe discomfort from his ailment and the heavy robes and jewelry. The Pope sweated profusely and grew purple in the face. But he smiled broadly nonetheless 
overjoyed to be surrounded by such a fine display. He could not raise his monocle to his eye while riding, so he had to be told of the ornate designs fringing the triumphal arches they passed. All the artists of Rome had turned their efforts in those weeks to dressing the set for the procession. There were garlands of myrtle, holly, and laurel decorating the streets, and silk banners hung from the houses. Wine was even pumped into some of the public fountains. As if all of this were not lavish enough, Leo's chamberlains followed behind his stallion, tossing gold and silver coins into the crowd. Once they reached the chapel, after the bishops had kissed the Pope's feet, a glorious banquet ensued. By the end of it, the new Pope lay down on the floor of the chapel, exhausted. Leo spared no expense for the festivities, and there was plenty of money to spend. In spite of his spending on wars and the arts, Pope Julius II had left a massive treasury, the largest held at the Vatican in almost 200 years. Now, in a sign of things to come, Pope Leo lavished around a quarter of the treasury's contents on the sacred procession. Less than a month into his reign, Leo X's office was already 25% poorer than it had been before his election. But the procession in Rome did not mark the height of the celebrations of Leo's new position. That honor was reserved for his first visit to Florence as pontiff two years later. In November 1515, 39-year-old Pope Leo X rode with his entourage toward Florence. For several days, thousands of artists and laborers worked around the clock to prepare for his entry to the city. They erected arches to put those of the sacred procession to shame. Leo rode past them amidst six gilded chariots adorned with the likenesses of Roman gods and emperors. Some chariots were pulled by water buffalo costumed to look like elephants. They were flanked by riders wearing lion, tiger, and wolf skins, the paws of which had been dipped in liquid gold. Leo looked in wonder at the endless spectacle his people had prepared for him. It was the most delightful thing he had ever seen, but the festivities would soon be marked by a tragic note. The grandest of the chariots featured a giant globe. In front of the globe stood a young boy whose whole body had been painted gold. As the procession was moving into the city, the boy suddenly collapsed. He was poisoned by the gold body paint and died there on the chariot. How much Leo knew about the incident is unclear. What should have been clear was that the refinement of the Medici patronage had descended into vulgar, ostentatious spectacle. And this was a sign of things to come. Pope Leo X's decadent lifestyle was just finding its stride. Shortly after his election, he had told his brother, God has given us the papacy. Let us enjoy it. And enjoy it, he would, indulging in revelries whose luxury and excess were unprecedented in papal history. Between the Medici fortune and the papal treasury, he imagined he could keep up his frivolities for an eternity. But soon enough, those seemingly endless funds would run dry. Leo would also have to pay for his extravagances, and they would end up costing him more than gold and silver. 
Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll find out about Pope Leo's corrupt attempts to fund his lavish lifestyle, which influenced Martin Luther to post his 95 theses and commence the Protestant Reformation. And we'll hear about the fierce confrontations between Leo and Luther as the two men battled over the soul of Christianity. For more information on Pope Leo X, amongst the many sources we used, we found White Robe, Black Robe, Pope Leo X, Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation by Charles L. Mee Jr. and The Medici by Paul Strathern, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.